story of the Binding of Isaac before that. <laughs> <laughs> or grappled with it, or, you know, just one of those easy nighttime stories you tell your kids. <laughs> so we only take on challenges here, and the challenge is not to leave feeling resolved, but to feel an elevated tension, to feel a uh, productive discomfort, as we like to say, uh, in order to ensure that our brain and heart and soul expand a little bit in the process of the grappling. So there's no better person to bring in to do that for us than Rabbi Stephen Exler, who is the senior rabbi at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, also known as the Bayit. Um, uh, anyone, anyone from the Bronx originally? Yeah. Okay. If, if you're from Riverdale, you call it Riverdale. You don't call it the Bronx, right? Because it's like above the Bronx. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole thing. Oh, politic, you know. Like from Scottsdale, not Phoenix. I don't know. Um, anyways, no, no, it didn't go well. It didn't go well. Uh, anyways, uh, Rabbi Exler um, uh, went to Brandeis as an undergrad. He was at YU for a, a, a grad degree, and he leads one of the most uh, one of the most prominent synagogues. Of course, there's nothing more prominent than our, our, our Phoenix synagogue, uh, but outside of Phoenix, one of the most prominent <laughs> synagogues in the country, and um, is truly uh, just a humble mensch, a brilliant pastor, and an incredibly talented educator. I'm a little bit biased, but only a little because in rabbinical school, he was my chavruta, he was my study partner, which was to my enormous benefit in my spiritual and intellectual growth. And he's just, he's just a dear, dear friend who, when I'm grappling with spiritual, theological, intellectual issues, is one of the remarkable people I turn to. So with that, does everyone have a packet for the night? This is not gonna be as much of just a lecture style as much as a text study and grappling. There will be a, a time for Q&A, but certainly uh, Rabbi Exel will, will will let us know how to kind of engage with this as well. So with that, we're so deeply honored that you flew in today from New York, and thank you, Rabbi Exler. Good evening, everybody. This is a little more like Shavuot night learning for me on uh, New York time. Uh, but it's so, it's so wonderful to be here to see uh, the community that uh, Rav Shmuley has brought together and uh, inspired just to get a chance to look around the room at a diverse population, excited to learn some Torah and to think about some Jewish and human issues together. Uh, so thanks for hosting me uh, with great, great appreciation uh, to the rabbi whose synagogue this is. Our synagogue hosts two rabbinical schools, but we charge them a lot for rent. So they gave me Josh really a, a great uh, appreciation. And it's an opportunity just to, for me to say a personal word of my great love and admiration for Rav Shmuley. I'm sorry my parents were not here to hear this intro, but I'm glad it's being recorded <laughs> for them. Uh, but uh, truly, truly, uh, I consider myself not just a friend, but a student of Rav Shmuley, of his passionate leadership, the world around. It's hard to keep track of him. Uh, and um, the Phoenix Scottsdale community is incredibly, incredibly blessed. You, I hope you know you're blessed, and I would even tell you you still don't even know how blessed you are to have uh, a Torah and human giant uh, and someone who I feel blessed to call a friend uh, as one of your Torah teachers and, and community guides. Twenty years ago tonight, at a peace rally in Tel Aviv, a law student named Yigal Amir, who attended the rally, literally, literally to the day, 20 years ago tonight, did something which he felt was a mandate dictated and called upon by God. 
And we all know what that was. It was one of the most painful moments in Jewish history, I would venture to say, when he shot and eventually thereby killed Yitzhak Rabin. And mm -hmm. uh, it was its own form of Akedat Yitzhak uh, and uh, a binding of an Isaac. Um, and as we grapple with tonight, really the question, is it possible to feel called upon by God to do something unethical and for Jewish tradition to in some way validate that uh, or not? Um, I want to really dedicate our learning to the memory of Yitzhak Rabin, someone who was a giant of our people, whose own journey in leadership of the Jewish people was a powerful one that's a guide for us about about evolution of original visions, coming into understanding of what facts are on the ground uh, and evolving and developing as such. Uh, and it's uh, a call for what I think we feel, especially today, remains desperately, desperately needed, uh, which is more peace and love and reconciliation amongst our own people, the Jewish people, uh, and peace and reconciliation with our own cousins and neighbors uh, in, in the land of Israel and the Middle East and around the world. So um, may Yitzhak Rabin's memory be a source of blessing for us. Uh, and may we feel challenged by that tragic and painful event to return to some of the questions around does God ask us to do something unethical? Um, which Yigal Amir actually felt, I believe, that God asked him to do something he considered ethical, which to us was the height of the unethical. Um, but how does it relate to the biblical story of the binding of Isaac is what I want to try to unpack tonight. So what does God ask of us in the world? We could turn to a variety of texts. We could start with Genesis. The, the Torah portions that we're reading in these weeks when we're wondering why did God choose Abram or Abraham and we're told because God saw in Abram someone who was going to instruct his household and those who would follow in his ways to do righteousness and justice. That's what God asks of human beings. Or we could turn to Deuteronomy when Moses in one of his final speeches to the children of Israel says, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear God, to love God, to cling to God, to perform God's commandments. Maybe a, a challenging list, but a straightforward and fairly uncontroversial list. And maybe we would turn to those famous passages from Micah. What does the Lord your God ask of you but to, and those most basic fundamental aspects of loving kindness and doing justly and walking humbly with God. If we turn through uh, the biblical corpus, it's somewhat uncomplicated, although it might be challenging for us to live up to what God asks of us. But I think when we turn to the story of the Akedah, we grapple a little more with what God asks of us. Uh, and I want to ask you the question. Um, the Akedah is so central, the binding of Isaac is so central to our Jewish lives. We read this reading on Rosh Hashanah. It's all bound up with the high holidays, with the liturgy of Yom Kippur. The shofar evokes that ram's horn from that moment. So, so much of the power of our relationship with God flows out of the narrative of the binding of Isaac. Uh, and yet, it's certainly one in which I would venture to say we feel some tension, unlike those verses in Genesis and Deuteronomy and Micah where we're saying, what does God ask of you? Be a good person. Those are, are fairly uncomplicated. But in this passage, I think we perhaps feel some tension around what is it that God asks of us when God asked Abraham in the plainest sense of the text, if you turn to source one 
uh, to source two on page one, Genesis chapter two, verse two. Vayomer, God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. This certainly intensifies that feeling. There's a lot to say about it. Was it really his only son? But take Isaac, go to Moriah, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, suddenly, it feels like the things that God asks of us get a little more complicated than be a good person, do justice, walk humbly with God. Uh, and I want to ask you to unpack with me. I think there may be at least three reasons, broadly in Jewish philosophy and in the story of Abraham and in this narrative, why this text brings into tension the question of what God asks of us. So why is, why is this request of Abraham? Think about what we know about Abraham and God's promises to him in the past. Think about what we know about Abraham and the way he's behaved in the Bible in the past. And just think about our conceptions of God. And help me answer the question, why is it uh, complicated? Why is there a tension in what God is asking Abraham to do right now? Why is this not uncomplicated? Yes. Well, I've said before, this, this is to me the most troublesome part of the Torah. I believe that, first, if, if God asked me to sacrifice my child, I would begin to say, I could not believe in a God who would ask me to murder an innocent human being. Great, great. Years ago, I read a commentary, I believe it was by Max Orspan, and his take on it was that God never told Abraham to do this. That Abraham, and it's interesting that you mentioned Yigal Amir, mm -hmm was a fanatic, and that he believed that the ultimate way to show how much he loved God was to sacrifice his only son, and when God saw what was happening, God realized that God had to step in and stop it. Great, great, excellent. Okay, so what I'm taking away from, uh, from your comments is first, an interesting question of interpretation of the story. And how, how much do we take the text at its plain sense? And that's going to flow all the way through our, uh, um, our readings of this text. How much do we take it at its plain sense? Uh, and if we felt in some way that God was asking us, whether in a personal, private communication that we felt convinced that we had received, or channeled through our history, through the biblical and, and rabbinic tradition, to the point at which we were <coughs> opening up a book of law or guidance and see written in black letters, a particular mandate to do something which felt to us profoundly immoral in that moment, how do we square that relationship with God to, towards whom we feel some loyalty and a sense of the our, our commitment to that which is ethical? Uh, and here raising the possibility that the way to square it is to read the story not in what appears to be its plainest sense, but that this was Abraham's own dream, imagination, understanding, and only at the end did some messenger of God step in and waken him from his <coughs> deranged reverie. Great. Yeah, well, let's make our way around. Yeah. I think that you have to put this in the context of the time Great. 3,000 years ago. Okay. 3,000 years ago, child sacrifice was not at all uncommon, as I understand it. If that's the case, then this is the beginning of a whole new world of respect and appreciation of human life. So whether God gave the instruction or not, 
the fact of the matter is it was revolutionary. And we define it in today's definition of human life. I think this might have been the first example of such a change, and we, the Jewish people, get credit for that, which was later followed by, for the most part, the universe. Revolutionary because it wasn't followed through. Because it, it, correctly? it didn't exist, except in this sole example. We, so what didn't exist? I want to make sure I understand. Child that. sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So this is the beginning of child sacrifice. No, this is the end of child sacrifice. There is a command to do it, but by the end of the story, it doesn't happen. And therefore, this is the first narrative in which we, we divert course away from child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And that sets the stage for that evolution in human history. Great. Excellent. I, that is absolutely one of the readings that we're going to delve into a little further. We're going to try to support it um, with some biblical texts off the page. Um, although I would still say we're going to have to grapple with, you said, sort of whether you say it was really God or not. But that's a critical question. You have the end of the story in which it doesn't happen. But we still have to deal with the beginning of the story in which it, it does seem to be commanded if we take the text at its plain text. But absolutely, putting this in its historical context is one core approach, and we're going to come to it, and I'm very glad you raised it. My favorite kind of shiora and learning, by the way, is one where I ask a couple of initial questions, you do all the work about like, <laughs> the various possibilities, and then we'll come back and see how, uh, over tradition, they have been said already in various texts in various ways. Um, but I actually, just to pause for a moment to say, to me that's an incredibly reinforcing experience for us as learners and students of Torah, because it says to us the Torah is intuitive. It does make sense. The things that we think as thinking human beings are the conversations that have been had over our textual Jewish history. So when we do this, working it through ourselves and then coming back to see it in the text, for me it's a very reinforcing idea that we're on the right track uh, as a people engaging with our sacred texts and engaging with our own minds and hearts as participants, uh, dynamic participants in that process. Yes? Well, at this point, Abraham could feel confused. And the reason that he could is because God had previously said to him, I'm going to make a nation of, of people from you, mm -hmm. as many as the stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. These are going to be people that are going to come from your seed. Mm -hmm. And so Abraham was going with that. And then all of a sudden here he says, take your son, your only son. Now this isn't Abraham's only son. But God is reinforcing that this is your only son. Mm -hmm. So you're going to sacrifice your only son. And by the way, you're going to have a nation of people mm -hmm. as numerous as the stars from your own seed. Absolutely. So uh, there could be some foreshadowing or some confusion, some ambiguity going on here. Great, yeah. great. I'll see your comment and raise you one. <laughs> uh, because uh, even further than what you said, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, God actually says, this is in the previous chapter, God says, We read it on Rosh Hashanah on the day one, and after we, you know, prior to reading this story on day two. Through Isaac will your descendants be called. So it's not only the general promise, you are going to be the progenitor of nations, and now Abram's saying, I, if I'm sacrificing my only or, the, or you know, my current best guess, 
you know, what's going to be. But actually, God says, this is going to be the progenitor of that line. This is the next link in the chain. And now God is saying, sacrifice that child. So good. So, so more narrowly, I would say, in a sense, than this global question of, oh, can God command something? Should we submit to a command that seems unethical? Internal to this very story is, what do we do when it seems that we're receiving two contradictory messages from God? Even bracketing the ethics, God says, this is going to be your progeny, and then God says, eliminate this as your progeny. So that's another reason why um, this is confusing, absolutely. Or, or internally, we have to struggle with an internal tension to the question of what does God want from us when it sometimes seems God is saying two different things, oppositional things about what God wants from us. Yes? I think it's critical that we look at the verse before where it said, then God tested Great. Abraham. Great. Because I think that Abraham was being tested, and maybe the perception should be that he never, God never expected this to happen or never would follow through with this kind of thing, but this was a test of faith. And what was, what was the God's, what would passing the test have looked like? Passing the test would have. <laughs> That's right. I mean, but it was a test of faith. Will you follow what I'm saying? Uh huh. And then when when God witnessed that that Abraham did actually was going to follow through with it, it's a, this was just a test. Okay, great. This just this a is test. a test. This is only a test. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. We're going to come back to that. That I think is what I want to carve out as a sort of middle path reading of the story, where where the first is. This is, this is real, and this is not only a test. This is a test, but the, but the question of the test is, will you actually do it, and I expect you to do it? Uh, and the kind of veering off to the side is a secondary part of the narrative. There's a middle path where I think the idea is the veering off from the path is kind of the heart of the point, not the initial command, but the, but the uh, not actually following through is the heart of it. Uh, and then there's a third which, which situates this, this in its historical context in a way we've already sort of opened up the directions of each of the three of them. But I'm glad you highlighted that because uh, we, we may, time permitting, and if not, maybe remind me at the end, come back to the question of what is, the, what is a test? What was the test here? And what were the, what were the expected metric of success or failure? Yes. I'm going to risk this being a digression, but we, we've spoken of two actors in this scene. We've spoken of God. We've spoken of Abraham. There is indeed a, a third actor, which is Yitzchak. Mm -hmm. Yitzchak is not a child. Yitzchak is a grown man. Mm -hmm. y Yitzchak is at this time, I recall, 37 years old. Right, according to many calculations. Oh, okay. yeah. and, and, and so how is Yitzchak passively engaged in his self-slaughter. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that is very, very difficult for me to think yes. of. Yes, uh, How he allows himself to be placed on the altar and bound up, yeah. prepared for sacrifice. Yes, yes. A beautiful question. Uh, I'm going to take you off on your offer that it's a bit of a digression uh, and say, let's park it. Uh, and I think we have to carry that in the back. Yitzhak is a critical character. Um, my focus more is on Abraham tonight, but I do think absolutely we have to ask that question. Uh, and I think there is something to uh, this as a part of Yitzchak's character as it unfolds throughout the rest of the, you know, these chapters of Reishit. You know, the, the, the characters of the Tanakh are, are characters. They're people with unique, distinct personalities and styles. Uh, and Abraham in this story follows his, I think. 
and Yitzchak follows his, uh, but they, they absolutely are, it's an important question and, and worthy of a conversation of its own. Yeah, we're going to continue making our way around. Yeah. We don't have a shy group. <laughs> I'm delighted. I'm delighted. Um, there's another alternative here. Um, we have to remember who Abraham is, Avram, mm-hmm. and we have to remember <coughs> the circumstances under which this is occurring. And we have to think perhaps he's playing flinch with God. You know, maybe they're vying one to the other Mm -hmm. to see who will Mm -hmm. back down. Mm -hmm. Who's testing whom? Right. And he might be hysterical, Avram. Mm -hmm. He might not know what he's doing. Right. Right. Those are all other alternatives. Right, right. I absolutely agree with you that that is a possible reading. And one of the things that's always amazing about biblical text is, especially narrative text, is how often it will genuinely support divergent readings. Uh, you know, uh, so much so, I'll just you know, mention part of what happens in verse 3, uh, especially, is this kind of hyperactivity. Just look at the, at the sequence of verbs. Avram got up early in the morning. He loaded his donkey. He took his servants. He chops the wood. He sets out for the place. The classical reading of this is this is what we call in Hebrew zrizut, alacrity. Avram is eagerly kind of running through this series of actions in order to hasten to perform God's will. It was always my father's contention, uh, and I uh, subsequently have discovered this in a number of Hasidic texts, that this is a totally different thing. This is a stall tactic. This is Avram waking up early in the morning because he couldn't sleep, and then chopping some extra wood and saddling his donkey. And you can start to read it rather than a, a hastening set of verbs as a kind of gradualizing set of actions while Avram's waiting for that second phone call saying, cancel, abort this mission. Uh, and he himself is struggling, testing, waiting. Uh, and I think. While I think the plainest, plainer sense of the reading is the former, that he's hastening, I do think that the text actually allows for both interpretations. And so that kind of piece of where is Abraham in this? Is he that faithful servant uh, or not? I think is absolutely an open question. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to build on what, what Sheldon was saying in the sense that this is also very inconsistent with what we know of Abraham's nature in other ways. God, God Abraham seems to have a real commitment to God being God's judge. Yes. And in other contexts, Sodom and Gomorrah, he questions God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here he doesn't question God. He acts um, um, almost as if he knows mm-hmm. that God, if, as, a, as a God of justice, will not do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So get back to kind of the, the dyadic relationship yes. that they're both testing each other. Not so much as sort of a game, but as a, a as a testament mm-hmm. to their bond, if you mm-hmm. will, their mutual faith. Great, great. And I, I want to turn your words a little bit just to kind of make this the third of what I think are the three um, points which situate us in a in a place of tension in this story. The first is the sense, our intuitive sense, although we have to come back to the historical context, our intuitive sense that child sacrifice should be wrong, as well as if you scan around biblical text, you will definitely find support for that 
in various spots, but we're going to examine that a little bit more closely a little bit later. So the first is the sense that God is asking Abraham to do something which definitely seems prohibited or wrong elsewhere in some other places in the biblical canon. That's point number one. Point number two is the internal to Abraham kind of story of Abraham's personality. Abraham is the one who holds God accountable for being a God of justice. You know, chapters earlier when it comes to interceding on behalf of the people of Sodom and Amorah. And therefore, how did Abraham, the one fighting for justice and protecting the, maybe not even so many innocent, but certainly, you know, ask, holding God to a standard of justice, why is he so quiet now? And we can offer answers to that. This is, uh, you know, about his own family, and actually, therefore, he feels more of a need to submit, whereas for a stranger, he's more willing to be a fighter for justice. There are different possible interpretations, but that, I think, is tension number two. If Abraham kind of submits willingly to something he sees as unjust or unethical, that's at odds with the Abraham of Sodom, as I would call it. And the third is the tension wherein Abraham seems to have been promised that Yitzhak will be his progeny, and now it seems he's being told something different. Uh, and I think these three things situate us in a moment of tension, asking the question, kind of how can God be asking a thing which either God prohibits elsewhere, where God has said something opposite elsewhere, or, uh, or where Abraham uh, doesn't respond in the way that we would have expected Abraham to, all of which kind of raise this question of what does God ask of us, and how do we make sense of this story? Uh, I want to point you uh, to a wonderful companion text um, to uh, our learning tonight, um, which is an article which is probably going live around now um, at a wonderful other learning institution called Mechon Hadar. Uh, it's an article by Rabbi Ethan Tucker, uh, who is an exceptional teacher, and I would encourage Rav Shmuley, if you have a chance to get uh, him or any of his chevra uh, out here, that that would be wonderful. You may already he have. hasn't responded to my email yet. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> great. Um, uh, he wrote an article on, he's writing now a weekly uh, commentary on the Torah portion, uh, linking it to broader issues, and he wrote an article on the binding of Isaac and many of these questions. Uh, a lot of my material overlaps with his uh, he's a friend and a mentor as well, and some of this material comes from uh, some learning I've had a chance to do with him. Uh, but I encourage you to look for that. It's a beautiful exposition of some of the topics that we're going to study tonight, and that we've already begun uh, to unpack tonight. So what I want to suggest uh, is that the text really, and the questions we've raised, allow for these sort of three possible, and there may very well be more, but three general approaches to the question of um, does God ask us to do the unethical, and how do we respond uh, to what appears to be an unethical demand by God? The first approach that we're going to unpack, I think, is the way this story has most classically been understood, which is the approach of submission to God, that we believe that God has an understanding of the world that we simply don't have, and what we're asked to do is to be faithful to God's command, whether we understand it or not and that that's what this story serves to teach us. That's option number one. Option number two is we have to have a level of submission to God, but also a faith that the story will always end well in some way, that kind of veering off. Yes, we kind of go in saying, I'm going to do what God asks of me, but that's because I know that even if it appears unethical, and I even genuinely believe it to be unethical right now, I know that somehow it's going to end well in the way that the Akedah, quote-unquote, ended well. 
um, and that that's kind of this middle ground path that I'm going to uh, attempt to suggest may even play out, not even in our own individual lives, but over a sort of arc of Jewish history. Um, and the third approach is the approach that says, no, we must absolutely follow our ethical intuitions, uh, and therefore um, either not submit to God in some form, or allow ourselves to be agents of shaping the tradition in such a way that we can always understand God's word as according with our ethical intuitions. And what I really want to do as we look at a couple of texts that'll help us uh, just unpack these three readings is also always ask the accompanying question, what are the consequences? And not consequences in a negative sense. What are the outcomes for us in our religious lives of any of these approaches? What are the outcomes of saying, I submit myself wholly and unquestioningly to God's will. What does that mean for our own development as ethical people, for our relationship to God? On the other end, what is the consequence of saying, I must always depend on my ethical intuition, and therefore, if the Torah, if God's will seems to me contrary, then I will reshape the Torah in some way in accordance with what seems ethically right to me. What's lost when we make that choice? Uh, and sort of how does a middle path either try to help address both or wind up in somehow as a lose-lose proposition uh, in kind of this blend between a relationship which recognizes the wisdom, authority of God uh, and a relationship that also trusts, validates, and honors our ethical <laughs> intuitions, which of course we believe in some way emerge as our being, Salam Elohim, people who are created in the image of God and therefore we hope and believe that in some way our you know, the angels of our better nature are a reflection of what we would believe and, and want to believe is God's will. Uh, so that's what I want to do by way of exploring a couple of texts that are uh, explications or in dialogue with the Akedah uh, over the next little while. Quick uh, open for questions about sort of those three approaches or what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I consider myself fairly religious, not Extremely so, but fairly religious. And I find it very difficult for me to look at some entity who says to me, kill your son. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I can't do mm -hmm. that. Let, uh, let me ask you, a, uh, if I can, just follow up for a moment. And uh, even though I'm asking it to you, I'm asking it to all of us. Uh, maybe, And I'll actually ask it as a rhetorical question, as a thought question. What are the manifestations, if there are, of that tension in our own lives? We don't believe in general today that God is asking us, God forbid, to kill our own children. Uh, although uh, we will circle back at the end to a Yehuda Amichai poem, which suggests what a certain type of analog um, to that request might be today. Um, but I would be really happy if we walked away from tonight's learning with the kind of um, tools to explore in our own lives what are the battlegrounds on which this question plays out? What are the things for us that where we feel that tension, if we feel that tension, where we feel somehow the commanding voice of God asks us to do something that feels at odds with our ethical intuition, and how do we play out that submission versus self-trust and with interpretation of God's will in the middle, how do we play out that, um, that dynamic? I would venture to guess that in a diverse population and even from person to person, those examples will be different for each of us. Uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you to hold your answers to that question until we really work through some of this material. Uh, but maybe it will be useful to have those 
particular areas in our own lives in mind as a sort of a, you know, a workbook, a working uh, example as we work through some of these texts. Okay, I'm going to ask you, let's hold our questions. I see two more from people who haven't had a chance to comment yet, so I do want to come back to you, um, but let's jump a little further in. Okay, so um, option number one, which I think has been the classical reading, is that the test of Abraham is will he submit to God's will, let's say, even against his own ethical intuition, which is that child sacrifice is a wrongful activity. The Torah prohibits it in other places. It's the wrong thing to do, but God wants to know, will you suspend your sense of what's right and wrong in order to obey my will? That's the classic reading of this. And we'll see just one instance uh, that demonstrates this idea from the Radak, a medieval commentator. Many of the medieval commentators took this general approach. Uh, and let's actually pick up in the middle uh, on page three. Second, second physical page of the source sheet, front side, page three. The Radak opens by asking kind of, how did this trial work? Who is this trial for? Who knew about this trial? Didn't it just happen up on a mountaintop? How did the word spread? Uh, and he now comes to answer that question. Uh, the, the fourth line down, this first full paragraph that begins, the truth is, the ha'emet, the truth is. I'd be happy if someone wants to read in English. And uh, this translation is actually a very loose translation, uh, which I took from uh, another source. It's not a word-for-word -word translation, um, but feel free, if you're a Hebrew reader, to follow along in the Hebrew and, uh, uh, you know, in accordance. Have, happy for a volunteer. Yes? In, in English. Thank you. The truth is. The truth is that the purpose of the trial was to demonstrate to the world Abraham's love for God. It was not meant to demonstrate anything to the generation during which Abraham lived, but to prove this to subsequent generations of people who believed in the Torah, which was handed down to us by Moses at the command of God. All that is written in the Torah is meant to teach the extent to which we are expected to demonstrate our love for God, if and when the occasion <coughs> arises. We know that Abraham loved Yitzchak more than he loved himself, seeing that he was already old and did not expect any more out of life. If Yitzchak were to die at that time, before he had married and raised a family, he would not have enjoyed any true satisfaction in his life on earth. This thought must have been very upsetting for his father, Abraham. And the next paragraph to further. Further, Keep going. Yep. further, Yitzchak was Abraham's son born in his elder years. Still, when God commanded him to offer him as a sacrifice, all that love became as nothing in Abraham's eyes and he neither asked nor tested, saying, didn't you say through Yitzchak will your descendants be called? Rather, when God told him to do it, he got up early and went to do God's will, and he did not weigh any other love in comparison to his love for God. Okay, and then he goes on in this beautiful <coughs> last paragraph, which I encourage you to read on your own, to talk about how kind of his take, the Radak's take on how the Torah became a popular text and how it thereby served as you know, an amplifier of Abraham as a role model, basically for the entire world. The Radak goes on to say, primitive paganism has ceased. You know, this is 13th century, uh, 14, 13th, 14th century. Everybody more or less views the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, as an authoritative source. And therefore, this story serves as the fundamental example for more or less all of humankind that the Radak was aware of in his perch in Europe. And, you know, for all of humankind, to understand the model that we're meant to follow, 
which is when God asks us of something, asks something of us, when we're, the occasion arises where we're called upon to demonstrate our love of God. By the way, it's very interesting to me. We know that in the end of the story, what God says is, I know now that you fear or revere me, Yireh Elohim, but the Radak shifts the focus to love of God. It's interesting, something to think about. Are these things demonstrations of fear of God or love of God? What's the relationship between those two and our relationship with, to God, with God? Uh, but the Radak's point here is, when we're called upon to jettison every other love and responsibility that we have in life in order to demonstrate our love of God, we turn to Abraham, we turn to his behavior in the Akedah, and we see that as the model for what we're supposed to do. The Radak was living in Europe and was living in a legacy of people who, you know, post-Crusades had made the most horrific of decisions, you know, for the sake of their relationship with God, either, you know, killing their children and then themselves. So there's a, there's a history of martyrdom in the generations prior to the Radak that I think very much colors the way people read the story of the Akedah. In certain ways, it was seen as almost a justifying precursor for a lot of the martyrdom uh, in Europe in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a kind of standard medieval interpretation of the Akedah, that this is, this is the paradigm of our submission to God. Even, you know, Abraham didn't even make that claim he could have made. God, you're not even making sense. Forget the ethical. You're just confusing me. He didn't say it. He got up. He did it. He did not weigh any other love in comparison to his love for God. This is, by the way, um, the approach that's kind of followed through into more contemporary philosophical circles. The 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, in his writings, talks about Abraham as the knight of faith, the one who was willing to put everything aside for his love of God and faith in God. Uh, and even within the Jewish community, uh, the 20th century Israeli philosopher and kind of social and communal critic, Yeshayahu Leibovitz, uh, also really wrote about this as kind of the model of faith. Everything is jettisoned to do God's will. And so it's not only a medieval approach, which, you know, has kind of fallen aside until today, but philosophers until today have spoken about this as the, the paradigm that we're looking for uh, in our relationship with God. I want to uh, hold your questions of one for, to get through one further text, and then we'll circle back. I want to ask the question... What are the consequences of this approach, right? So one thing we certainly certainly heard from around the circle is um, it involves a shedding of our own sense of what's right and wrong, uh, and therefore, in some way, a an internal separation of the self, where we're going against some intuition that we have, and therefore, while I would say just at a relational level, while at the same time it's the ultimate commitment to God but it's done with an uncertainty that it's the right thing, and therefore it involves a certain alienation from God. Um, yes, God, I'm doing your will, but because I've not actually internalized and believed that it's what I'm supposed to do, does it actually bring me closer to you, or does it make me a faithful, a faithful servant who at the same time carries pain and hurt and negativity in my relationship with you? So, you know, if you, if you hold on to an ethical intuition that what you're doing in order to be loyal and faithful to God is still somehow wrong, then it may not actually help our relationship to God. And one of the things that I think is perhaps most powerful by way of kind of talking about the consequences of this approach is one of my favorite poems of all time, and it's a poem about the Akedah. It's called Yerusha, Inheritance. We generally think about inheritance as a good thing, and this poem flips it on its head. It's the first source at the very beginning. Uh, and um, 
I'm going to read it in Hebrew because the Hebrew is so lyrical. Uh, and um, I'm just going to ask you to follow along in the English. Uh, just it's, it's worth the Hebrew being heard. Chaim Guri was a 20th century Israeli poet, um, you know, uh, widely uh, awarded and respected poet who kind of lived through the history of the state of Israel, to the best of my knowledge, is still alive today, um, but uh, was a fighter in many, many of Israel's wars and kind of the first half of her history. Uh, and, um, you know, came from, uh, spent time, was born in Israel, spent some time in Eastern Europe, came back to Israel, lived most of his life in Israel and until today, and uh, just incredible poet. Here's what he writes. Again, follow along in the English. I'm going to read the Hebrew. Ha'ayil ba'acharon, v'lo yada Abraham ki hu meshiv li sheilat ha'yeled, reshit ono be'et yomo arav. Nasaro sho hasav, Viroto kilo chalam chalom, vhamalach nitzav, nashrahama chelat miado. Hayeled shagutar me asurav, raa et gav aviv. Yitzchak kamesupar, lo hola korban, uchayamim rabim, raa batov, ad ur enav kaha. Aval et hasha'a hahi. Horish letzeet sa'av, hem noladim umachelet belibam. But he bequeathed that hour. Is he Abraham? Is he Yitzchak? Is he both of them? But he bequeathed that hour to his offspring. They are born with a knife in their hearts. The Hebrew there, ma'achelet, is the Hebrew word. It's not, in modern Hebrew, we say sakin for knife. But the word ma'achelet, particularly chosen, because that's the word in Genesis 22 that refers to the knife that Abraham is about to use to slaughter Yitzchak, is the ma'achelet. So they are born with a knife in their hearts. Mm-hmm. I, I, I welcome just a, a, an initial reflection or two. What, is, what, uh, what do you make of this poem? And, and mo- more directly, what is Chaim Guri saying to us about the consequence of Abraham's willing submission to God? I'd love to hear from someone who has a comment. Yeah, well, yeah. Part of what you're saying is it's been taking a focus off of Abraham for a second and saying, well, what about Yitzchak? Mm-hmm. He was here as well. How, how is this going to affect him? His father was about to kill him. And what type of faith did Yitzchak have to not only trust in his father's faith to Hashem, but to trust in his father as well, that whatever may happen will happen, and he's going willingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. So shifting the camera angle a little bit to Yitzchak, and, and I would highlight thinking about the consequence of Abraham's decision of submission, not only vis-a-vis his relationship with God and passing the test, but what's the consequence on his relationship with Yitzchak? Uh, and the poet here, I think, has a very pessimistic mm-hmm. take on that question. We could answer, Yitzchak becomes a partner, you know, and he, he joins in this submissive identity and this submissive kind of religious approach, uh, and, they, and they come even closer together. That's not the take of this poet. I think it's grounded in the fact that uh, famously the story ends. Um, if you turn forward, we, we're not actually invested in, uh, you know, immerse ourselves too much in the text of the story itself. We'll touch back on it a couple of times. But if you turn to the very end of the narrative, uh, in verse 19, uh, towards the bottom of page 2, we read, Vayashov Abraham el Na'arav. Abraham returned to his servant, who didn't return. Isaac. 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 Where's Yitzchak at the end of the story? He was mad. 
Who knows, I think, is the answer to the question. There, this, this is open for interpretation, but what I think Kayim Gori is saying to us in this poem, remember how the whole run-up is by El Mushnehem Yachtav. They walked together. It says it twice. Now, at the end, Avram walks alone. Kayim Gori is saying to us, there has been an irrevocable break in the relationship. Avraham, what, what the Radak said to us, which was, Avraham put aside his love for Yitzchak for his love for God, Chaim Guri in the 20th century comes back to us and says, that's good for Avraham and God, but what's the impact on Avraham and Yitzchak? And maybe even what's the impact, therefore, on Yitzchak and God? And I would go one step further, what's the impact on all of us? And what that's what he's saying. What's the impact on Sarah? A whole other, very important. There's some beautiful, there are some ancient Midrashim about it, and there's some really beautiful contemporary Midrashim that really try to talk about her voice in the story, which is, which is absolutely critical. That's uh, one of the classic Midrashic approaches that she basically died as a result of this. Uh, and so just, again, one, one last piece on this, end, on this end of the poem is, you know, what Chaim Gori is saying is, it's all well and good for the Radak to say that this is the model for all time for us to understand a relationship of submission to God, Chaim Gori says, I don't disagree, but the other side is also true for all time. We're born with that knife in our hearts, that, that knife that I kind of think about as tearing apart, in some way, Abraham and Yitzchak, Abraham and himself, our relationship to God. That is a consequence. Oh, and, and I want to come to Rashmuli's point and, and uh, one other, but just to take one step back, because I don't want to come off too heavy on one side or the other here. And this is something that if you have a chance to read Rabbi Ethan Tucker's essay on this, he does a beautiful job of. Let us not uh, dismiss the power of submission, of submission to God's will. What is our relationship with God? How do we truly honor an omnipotent, omniscient God, if that's how we relate to God, if not to submit to God? If we decide to go to the other extreme of, I'm willing to submit to God when it accords with my own sense of what's right and wrong, what is that submission? So I don't want us to walk away you know, down on submission to God. There's an incredible power, and we have to ask ourselves in our own lives, what place does that have in my life? And the third approach, which I'll come to, I think really touches on that in an important way as well. Um, but you know, it has consequences, but I'm not here to say it's a wrongful approach or the wrong thing to do. We just have to think about it broadly. Yeah, Rosh Two very brief thoughts. Yes. One on this notion that for the offs for the generations to come, they're born with a knife in their heart. I think this touches upon the idea that Judaism at its best, or religion at its best, is to strengthen the family unit. But inevitably, over the generations, Judaism has divided the family unit mm. in many ways. And this is sort of the birth of the Judaism practice in a way that becomes destructive to uh, to to the family unit. The second is that it's a very modern idea that we choose the religious aspects that are are meaningful, fun, engaging, resonate for us. But Judaism, as passed down, I think at its core ethos was about sacrifice. And I think this is part of the challenge we see between generations in America for the last few hundred years of grandparents saying to grandkids or parents saying to grandkids, of course you go to Yom Kippur. It's Yom Kippur. You don't need an explanation. You sacrifice. This is what, this is what your grandparents do. And, and other generations not understanding that. Right, a sense of, of sacrifice being central or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that divide continues to kind of play out in this offsprings with knives in their hearts. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, very hard to follow his comments, you know. <laughs> Tell me but, about it. We were study partners. <laughs> but but I, I, would, I would tag on to that, that we have a, a knife in the heart is a, 
is a, a heartache. Mm -hmm. And the heartache is how do we live as Jews? Mm -hmm. It's very simplistic, mm -hmm. but how do we live? And it's not always just, let's have a porn party. Okay, it's, you, there are sacrifices yes. to be made, and where are they? Yes, yes, wonderful, yeah. Yeah, from the very first time that I read about Abraham and Isaac and what God asked Abraham to do, I hated Abraham for, for, for even thinking mm -hmm. about doing this. And I, I kind of think that maybe he is also testing God because God did promise that I'm going to make the world from, from, your, from your progeny. But now I'm, I'm thinking Abraham is finished with what he was supposed to do and God saved him from killing his own son. But what did it do with his relationship? Is he sorry that he listened to God and went as far as he did? What happened to the relationship between father and son, yeah. between, between husband and wife? Yes, those are wonderful questions. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, we'll be able to check it just by reading the next couple of weeks' uh, Torah portions, I believe that Abraham never speaks to his father. Again, I don't believe there's any further narrative of conversion. Was, was, was life right. or the sacrifice right. wasn't the, the loss of life of Isaac, it was the bond that the two of yeah. them shared. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in order for the, the next generation to flourish, they could not be each other's lives. Yes, and the power of this poem is so great that uh, I, just, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point to a couple of other just gorgeous, subtle ways in which it sends this message. Stanza two. Right? The old man raised his head, seeing that it was no dream, and that the angel stood there. The knife slipped from his hand. <coughs> what that means to me is not, oh, I'm really being told. Like, I take really seriously that I'm being told to stop. What I take it as, wow, an angel. Incredible. And he kind of got distracted from slaughtering Isaac. Right? This is, Abraham is facing the angel. He's not facing his son. And that's borne out further by the next stanza. Yeah. The boy's released from his bonds. How did he even get released from his bonds? It's not, it's like he must have wriggled out. No, the right? knife slipped. The knife slipped, there you go. And it just chopped <laughs> off the, uh, excellent. The knife slipped from his hand, chopped off the bonds. Yitzhak got up, and, and he sees his father's back. Abraham is communicating with the angels. Like, the, you know, they, they're facing away from each other. And that the whole, so much of this poem is about that consequence. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I especially just love that, that it's, it's hinted at or, or made explicit in every stanza. Yitzchak, as the story goes, was not sacrificed. Why does he say as the story goes? Because as the story goes, but actually he kind of was sacrificed, right? And in a way that's also really a modern midrash on the end of the story, where it says that Abraham came down and it doesn't say Yitzchak came down, because he was kind of sacrificed. As the story goes, he wasn't. But in a way, he really was, and that's uh, one of the that's a possible consequence of this, you know, of this submission model. And again, not to come down on one side or the other, just to think about the power and the consequence of the model. Yeah, Rabbi. Just to uh, affirm uh, my understanding, also, if worthy of checking, is that Abraham and Isaac do not speak to one another after this incident, and also that Abraham and God don't speak to one another. Uh -huh. So that, so that maybe there's some damage to that relationship. Uh huh. Too. Uh huh. Interesting. You're still from people who haven't had a chance. Yes. I, I always wonder why, since Yitzchak is a man, not a child, mm -hmm. why did he allow himself to be bound? Yeah. I mean, I can understand the the walk to the you know to the uh, hill and the and the gathering of the of the uh, firewood and all of that. But why did he allow himself to be bound? Was it because he had as much faith in his father, in Abraham, as Abraham had in God? 
but it's just it's it's always been a, a question that just I, yeah. I can't I can't deal with. Or Great. maybe he was so distressed by it that he was willing to die. I think that was said, let's play a game. Yeah. Yeah. Any are possible. I think it's the right question. Uh, Remember it when we come to the last source, to the Yehuda Amichai poem, which I think has a, a sort of an answer to it. And there's a third poem I didn't bring. Um, there are many more. There's a wonderful genre of Akedah poetry. Uh, but there's another poem by an angry, angry poet, you know, or an angry, angry poem. And he basically says, Yitzchak, are you mad? Haba lahorgecha hashkem lahorgo. A Jewish principle of self-defense. If someone is killing you, is coming to kill you, Kill them first. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. Now there's there's some heavy stuff for you. Yeah, my friend. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're by nature we like to draw lines. You know, we'll do this, but no further. Um, and I heard people talk, and I have no children. I'm starting by saying that first. I cannot imagine sacrificing my child being asked to. Pose it a little different way. Your child has just taken a AK whatever, shot up a bunch of people in a school, and is hiding, and you know where that child is. If the police come to you, do you give that child up knowing full well that that child will be imprisoned, possibly killed? Is there, you know, we look at lines, you know, and I always think when I see these stories, what are those parents thinking? You know, mm -hmm. so you know sometimes where you draw the line depends on different situations, different interpretations. And back in these days, it, it, you know, people didn't draw lines in the same way. Yeah. You know, faith was significant. God was living and involved in their daily lives all the time in their beliefs. So it's just another thing to think about. Maybe. Yeah. Good. Let me ask people. Yes, I'll take one more right over here, and then I'm going to ask people to hold on. We're going to get through model number two, and then come back. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I don't want to jump ahead. I know you said that we would come back to the concept of what the test was, what, yeah. what passing that test would mean. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's taken for granted that Avram passed the test, mm -hmm. right? And that's mm -hmm. sort of the mm -hmm. tradition yeah. that we come from. Yeah. But so, you know, I think. You know, in our modern interpretations, I mean, we have people saying, Abraham was a nutcase, right. or, or, they, right. or, you know, whatever we can say. Right. So, maybe it's heretical, but to say, how do we know that Abraham did pass this test? Right. Because, I mean, it says, I will, I'm testing you. Yes. So, yes. so what if the test is, I want to see if you'll actually do this, right. and him going through with it Good. is like... Good, great, wonderful question, great segue into what I want to offer as a second model. Um, and and uh, I'm going to try to answer your question in, of a sort um, by talking about the second model. So model one is the pure submission model. It's the model that the general medieval interpretation of the story took. It's a model that some contemporary philosophers offered Abraham as the paradigm of within our religious persona, uh, personae, which is to have a full submission of God to, God to God regardless of our ethical intuition. A middle ground approach, and this uh, I, uh, I'm wary of attributing this to one of my teachers because I'm not sure he would agree exactly with how I'm uh, turning it, um, but it's something which I was thinking about uh, after hearing a panel on the Akedah um, of different takes. One, one take was offered by my own Rosh Hashiva, the head of the rabbinical school from which Rosh Shmuley and I graduated, Yeshiva Chobay Torah, Rabbi Dov Linzer, and he says, 
And we touched on this already uh, because you laid out all of the different possibilities as we discussed this in the opening of the, of the shiur. Um, and that is, don't focus as much on the beginning of the story as on the end of the story. What happens in the end of the story? We come back now to, um, uh, to verse 12, uh, turning the page over to page 2 to verse 12, right? Actually, let's go, let's go from verse 11. In verse 10, Abraham has the knife in his hand. He's ready to slaughter his son. Verse 11, Vayikra elav malach Adonai min ha-shamayim vayomer Abraham, Abraham vayomer hineni. A, the messenger of God, angel of the Lord, calls out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. Don't send your hand forth against the child. Don't do anything to him. I know that you are a God-fearing, God-revering person. For that, you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. By the way, interesting here, your son, your only son, what's missing from the trio in the beginning? Whom you love. Interesting, right? Your son, your, your only son. The love has disappeared in this description of, of Abraham's relationship with Yitzchak. Um, so this is where I would point you to say that from God's perspective, Abraham passed the test. God said, I know that you are God-fearing because you were willing you were willing to sacrifice your son, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I didn't actually make you do it. And this is kind of the second piece, which says, when we think about this model of submission, we can sort of tweak it by the end of the story. The end of the story is, God didn't actually make Abraham do the unethical thing. Uh, and because we, we're still operating off of the assumption that it was indeed unethical, uh, and therefore God wanted to know that Abraham would be willing to do it, but at the same time, kind of the flip side is, but God would never actually make Abraham do it. And we kind of walk away with this sort of middle ground. We sort of have to be willing to submit even to that which feels against our inclination. But at the same time, we believe that at the end of the day, God would never actually make us do that thing. I think that's kind of a hard line to walk. Uh, but the way I think about it in kind of uh, as a religious model, um, and in a, in a certain way, and I say it transparently here, there are parts of my own religious life with which I struggle a little bit about their ethics. Certain parts of traditional Judaism, whether it's its relationship to non-Jews or even its non-egalitarianism in certain parts um, that I continue to subscribe to uh, in my own practice, but I struggle with, which are, I would call them immoral, but I think that there are things that I struggle with uh, Judaism's relationship to homosexuality in its traditional uh, understanding, the traditional understanding of the, the biblical command, something that I really struggle with. Uh, and for me, one kind of way of situating myself is to sort of say, uh, and here I think about the, the, the line which I believe preceded him, but Dr. King often quoted, which was, the arc of the moral universe is, is long, but it bends towards justice. Uh, and that is to say, I need to know that I'm walking a path which is always tending towards the more and more ethical, and yet at the same time, I may recognize that as Jewish tradition evolves, I'm not fully there. Uh, and that has to do with kind of the pace of change, where the, com where the community is at, and the various kind of responsibilities that I have to juggle. It's an uneasy position, because if I truly believe that something is not fully right, how can I subscribe to it? But if it's what I believe God is asking of me, that's where the law is today, and yet I also see it progressing, then the question is, do I interpret it 
kind of ahead of the schedule and move it proactively, aggressively forward? Um, or do I kind of strike out this middle ground? And I think in some way it's possible to understand this story as on the long view, we're heading towards a perfect, perfectly right and good Judaism. Uh, and you know, we may map out various points in the spectrum in our own communities and practices. We have to sort of strike this balance between submission to the tradition and how it plays out and evolves over time and the sense that it is ultimately always going towards the right place, but we may be in certain stuck grounds along the way. And that's sort of this middle position, this model. And I want to illustrate it um, and the kind of difficult way of walking that line. I want to illustrate it just by one comment of Rashi uh, that I think um, I've, I've always thought about. It's Rashi on uh, the back, uh, page four, it's source four. What Rashi seems to be picking up on here is the possible dual language of the angels' uh, call instructions to Abraham. Don't send your hand forward against the child. And don't do anything to him. That seems a little bit redundant. We could explain it as in some way meaning two different things, but it sounds a little bit redundant. Why? Says Rashi in Source 4. Don't send your hand forward to slaughter him. So then why do you have to say don't do anything to him? Because something else happens in between that the Midrash, that Rashi quotes, fills in. Look at this source. He, Abraham, said to God, But God, you told me to sacrifice him. Now you're telling me don't sacrifice him. Let me just draw a little bit of blood. I got to do a little bit of justice to your original command. Right. In one sense, it sounds preposterous and absurd. But understand Abraham's conflict. Now he's again being told two contradictory things. He was told to sacrifice, now he's being told not to sacrifice. Which is God's will? He's so confused. So he says to God, like, help me find this middle ground. God says, no, do nothing. Altas bo mum. And here's just a beautiful little rabbinic play. Meuma is similar to the language of mum, mum, blemish. Don't even make a blemish. Don't even draw a single drop of blood. And it's that sort of push forward. But what we feel in Abraham is kind of this tension. I want to feel like I'm submitting to your will. I want to feel like I'm doing what you're asking of me, and I'm sort of conflicted. Uh, and there's this sort of middle ground almost that Abraham is seeking. God is pushing him forward, but there's this middle ground. And what Rabbi Linzer has said about this, that I think this is not fully his approach, but one of the things he's also pointed out about this is the very important textual point, uh, and here just turn back to page two for a moment, this very important textual point, which is the original command to sacrifice his son is given straight by God. Right? God said to Abraham in verse 1, but the revocation of the command in verse 11 is from the angel of the Lord. Right? Rabbi Linzer's very beautiful point is you have to be willing, right? if, if you want to submit to God's will, but you're not sure it's the ethical thing, but you hear a little voice telling you to stop, not to do it, be willing to listen to the voice of the angel. Don't, ha don't feel stuck on the God command if the angel is telling you not to. And that's sort of a kind of interesting way of thinking. Yes, submitting to God's will, but if there is a voice out there, an authoritative voice, it's not the God voice, but it's the angel voice, an authoritative voice saying, go forward towards the ethical, then kind of believe in that and hear that voice. And so it's a way to, it, it, this is a, the gray, fuzzy area, but it's somehow a sense that we're always journeying towards the ethical, but there has to be some balance between submission and the ethical. 
let me take a couple quick comments, then I want to um, look at the third final position. <coughs> and thank you for your uh, energy and, and connection as we're as the evening is going um, further. Yeah. Andrew, I was only going to say that it's that model that I personally can apply to God as another character in this picture that we really haven't looked at. Mm -hmm. Because the Torah has a growing and developing and learning God all yes. the way through this. Yes. And we haven't really talked about the struggles that God may have very well mm -hmm. been having after the things that he's done in the last couple chapters mm -hmm. of the Torah. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Uh, yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I think it's a I think that um, I once got up in, in our synagogue, just read the verses from uh, you know, from the end of the flood, or from before the flood, where God says, you know, I'm going to destroy all humankind because, I, you know, I see that they're evil and I regret having made them. And then after the flood, when God says, I'm not going to destroy humankind anymore, I realize that, you know, they may yet sometimes do wrongdoing. And I said, like, this is not typically said in an Orthodox shul, but I'm just reading the Torah. God evolves as a character. There seems to me to be no question about that. And so I very much appreciate it. We have to somehow square that with lots of medieval philosophy about an unchanging God, but the Torah gives us the opportunity to see God as a character in that way. How that plays out in our actual kind of personal theologies and our relationship with God today is a question to think about, but I, I, I absolutely agree with you about and that. And we tend to do that at Temple High. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Yes. So, so isn't there sort of a spoiler here in the text, or can we let Abraham off the hook in um, in verse five? We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So it seems like Abraham is saying, "I know I am really not going to have to do this." Yes, that is a reading which has been suggested by some. I think an alternative possibility is. He doesn't want to frighten Yitzchak too much yes. at that moment, so he's just kind of keeping it calm, you know, yeah. keep calm and carry on type of thing. Um, but there, there certainly had, that is that's one of the main sources for the reading that suggests that you know Avram actually already knew he was being tested. We don't have that sense necessarily from verse one, where only the narrator is telling us that God is testing Abraham. But maybe somehow Abraham knew and knew what the outcome was going to be. It's certainly a possible interpretation. And again, there are disparate points that all have to be brought together into some coherent reading, uh, you know, within this chapter. And I, I think that's a, a very challenging thing. Uh, yes. I always found it very back. interesting that God is the one who tells Abraham to do yes. this horrible thing. But the, it's the angel. Yes. Yes. He doesn't hear God's voice stopping him. He hears the angel's yes. voice stopping him. Yes. So why does he hear God stop yeah. him? Yeah, in a way, I, I don't know. It's a critical point, and I offer one thought about it, but in a way, maybe it comes back to the, kind of the reverse of the deranged Abraham. Maybe God really told him to do it, and Abraham made up the voice of the angel telling him not to do it. That would kind of be a total reversal. Of course, then we have to deal with, you know, the blessings and all of that that come afterwards, but, you know, th there's so many ways to kind of spin this. You had a hand earlier. Yes? Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so when I was studying this originally as a young person, I sort of went with the traditional interpretation, and yes, it makes sense, you know, Abraham was being tested, and he passed the test, and, uh, and all that, and that sort of reinforced the thing where you have the Israeli definition of friend. So if a friend comes to you, and he asks you to do something that you think is totally illegal, you do it for him anyway because he's your friend and you trust that in the end it'll come out okay. Now, as I got older, 
uh, things sort of changed for me. And my take on it now is that Abraham actually failed the test. Mm -hmm. And the reason I come to that is what happened post-World War II. So even now, well, yeah, even now in the American military, when you get inducted, and I don't know the exact wording, but you take an oath, and that is that you will fully and faithfully obey the orders of the chief executive. So, uh, and of course they leave out the fine print, mm -hmm. which is that you can only obey an order if it's lawful, because essentially the, the Germans did the same thing, mm -hmm. they were prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So a good analogy in modern times would be, so you're, you're an airplane pilot, and you've sat down, and you're given the briefing, and you're told that, okay, there's a bunch of civilians, and you've got to go out and drop some bombs on them. Mm -hmm. And they're not civilians that are, have anything to, mm -hmm. to do with the war effort, they're just mm -hmm. civilians. So what do you do? You mm -hmm. just disobey the order right then and there, and get arrested, or you actually take off from the plane right. and fly, right. and then in the last minute, you get a reprieve. Yeah. So, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Yeah. So like I say, I think that the test, that Abraham actually failed, failed the test, and what he, what he should have said is, you know, this just goes against yeah. against everything. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Great, great. Hang on, I'm going to look at model number three because the hour is late and then uh, take some concluding thoughts. Model number three comes back uh, to what uh, was said towards the very beginning, which is to actually query um, the question of whether child sacrifice was unethical in Abraham's time. Now, this is an uncomfortable type of query. Um, but actually, when you survey a little bit more biblical literature, it appears that it's possible to say that child sacrifice in the ancient Near East and even in the Jewish-Israelite community was not immoral. It was just really, really hard. That sounds too... Of course, we can only help understand this if we take off our heads and take off our hearts and take off our consciences and all of those things and try to put on the clothes, the garb, the, the world that they were living in. Um, but it's interesting just to actually look at some biblical texts, and I didn't reproduce them here, but just uh, I'll mention a couple of them. The famous story of Jephthah's daughter, Yiftah's daughter, uh, in the book of Judges. If you read it, you see there's no moral opprobrium there. There's not a sense that what Yiftah did was immoral, only that he got himself into a really tragic scenario by making a vow that he was going to you know, offer up if he came back victorious, the first thing that came out of his house, and that was his daughter. It didn't seem like he had done something wrong, just that he was now stuck in a painful scenario of giving his most precious thing to God, um, but not that that was illegal or immoral. Interestingly, we opened up when we asked the question, what does God ask of us, by, by alluding to the verses in Micah, you know, uh, you know uh, what does man, what, do, what does God ask of you, and those three core uh, items. Just two verses before that, there's kind of the contrast where Micah says, what God doesn't care about is your offerings, right? This typical uh, prophetic um, opposition, which is not actually anti-offering. It's just anti-offering when, when you're morally correct. <coughs> but Micah is saying there, God doesn't care about your battling sacrifices, etc. And Micah actually says, and God doesn't care about your burnt offerings, and God doesn't care about your child offerings, God just wants you to be righteous and just, etc., etc. Check it out, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And in the plainest sense of that reading, it kind of sounds like that was an option. Right? God, 
God doesn't, isn't interested in any of these things, not because they're wrong, but because they're not the important thing. And there are a couple of texts around the Tanakh, around the Hebrew Bible, which seem to suggest to us that in the ancient Near East, it was the most profoundly painful and rare thing to do, but it wasn't actually morally wrong. This is an argument that Robert Gordas made in the 1970s, Rabbi Robert Gordas, and just in a short excerpt, the actual original article is not the one that I've uh, um, put in quotes here. I think this is a, a compilation of some of his writings where the article is reproduced. But here he writes in Source 5, In the patriarchal age, this horror of child sacrifice, an attitude in which Judaism was unique in the ancient world, still lay in the distant future, meaning the horror of it still lay in the distant future. Abraham, living near the thousand years before Micah in a world permeated by pagan religion, did not see himself confronted by a moral crisis when he was commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac, and he proceeded to obey. His faith was being subjected to the most painful test possible, but he was not being asked to violate the moral law as he understood it. Take this or leave it, it's an open question, but it really changes how we think about the Akedah. It, it turns it into the idea that perhaps we can escape this impossible question. And we can say, actually, God never asks of us something which is immoral. But God does ask of us things that are really hard, really painful. God asks of us great sacrifices, as someone pointed out. Jewish life is filled with sacrifices that we're asked to make. And I think you know, there, are, there are consequences to this approach as well, um, which is, what happens then when I'm faced with a Jewish law that appears to me unethical? If I hold strong to the idea that, if I say that the Akedah is not this example, and therefore it genuinely is true that God never asks of me anything that's unethical, then if I'm faced with something that appears that way, and this is what Rabbi Ethan Tucker would say, either I have to realize that my ethics are wrong and adjust to the ethics of that thing because I'm certain that God would never ask of me anything unethical, or I have to say that the law somehow is not correct as it is, or it's not been interpreted correctly, and I must hurry to find that correct interpretation which will make it not unethical, because it's an absolute impossibility, because the most foundational text which would suggest that it is possible that God asks us to do the unethical is not actually saying that, because the story of the binding of Isaac is not actually saying that. And that opens up a whole other set of consequences. We therefore have to rely a lot more on ourselves we sort of don't have this unethical God, but how do we know how to kind of move forward in interpreting halakha uh, in such a way that will lead us to a certainty of its ethic? And also, I think, asking the question, where is that value of submission then? There certainly is the submission to doing the hard thing. But if, it, you know, depending on how hard of things we're asked to do, how do we kind of truly feel subservient to God? But then I'd ask back the question, how important is that feeling in our religious identities? Um, just, uh, I think, one of the most powerful illustrative examples of this reading of the Akedah to today, uh, and it was kind of uh, sort of alluded to, is uh, the example, for example, of my sister-in-law, my wife's older sister, who lives in Neve Daniel in Gush Etzion in Israel, and uh, has five boys, the oldest of whom is 15 years old. And one after another, as well as actually her, her oldest, who's a daughter who's doing national service now, but one after another, they're going to go into the Israeli army. And she's really being asked, they and she, my brother-in-law no less, are being asked to do something incredibly hard, something incredibly painful, maybe the ultimate sacrifice. 
But I don't think any of them would say it's unethical. It's something they believe in, serving in the Israeli army. But it's the, it's the ultimate sacrifice to send your child off into that service, not knowing if they will return. Uh, and one of the, I think, just a beautiful linkage between the Akedah and this, and I would offer it as a, it's a kind of a counterpoint, poetic interpretation, is Source 6. One of my absolute favorite poets, Yehuda Amichai, the poet laureate of Israel for many years. I had one chance in my life to meet him in 1997 and to hear him read some poetry in Israel. Just one of the gems of, uh, of the 20th century uh, and of the Jewish people. Um, and he writes this poem. This is a, a, an excerpt of a poem. Every year our father Abraham, the Hebrew is also beautiful, but I'm going to read this one in English. Every year our father Abraham would take his sons to Mount Moriah, the way I take my children to the Negev hills where I once had a war. Abraham hiked around with his sons. This is where I left the servants behind. That's where I tied the donkey to a tree at the foot of the mountain. And here, right here, Isaac, my son, you asked, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Then, up a little further, you asked the second time. When they reached the mountaintop, they rested a bit, ate and drank, and he showed them the thicket where the ram was caught by its horns. After Abraham died, Isaac started taking his sons to the same place. Here I lifted the wood. This is where I got out of breath. Here I asked, and my father answered, God will see to the lamb for the offering. Over there, I already knew it was me. And when Isaac's eyes were dim with age, his children led him to that same spot on Mount Moriah and recounted for him all that had come to pass, all that he might have forgotten. Mm. Here there's like almost the nostalgic sweetness of the moment. Like, this is where I was willing to give it all up for God. But, we, but it, didn't, you know, it didn't go that way because I knew all along it wasn't going to go that way or just because I love God so much we just went for it, and it all worked out in the end, and we kind of come back here knowing how hard it is to serve God with a full heart, but also feeling the love, right? It's the total contrast, in my reading, to the Chaim Gori story. It's like loving. They return with a nostalgia, with a connection one to another. Uh, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's again, rather than the knife in the heart, it's this family trick which is repeated from generation to generation. And to me, it sort of plays out this last reading where it is we're asked to make great sacrifices for God, but we're not asked to do the unethical for God. Um, and so hopefully along the way, um, and I would say kind of one broader almost meta comment, which is how do we relate to this story altogether as readers of the Torah? Is it an authoritative text for us? Do we feel bound to follow whatever we interpret to be the message of the Akedah or not? What's the authority of the Torah for us? I think is kind of another question to which we can offer any of the same array of answers. But it is, in, I think I, would, I want to say, in not a painful way, it's the knife in our heart. It's the thing which is so deeply embedded in us that we can never escape from it. It's embedded in our hearts, this story and our kind of relationship with God. And I hope that uh, sort of three models that we offered uh, and the text that surrounded them and the capacity of this story to tolerate and even to support each of them in their own ways together with the interpretations from around, uh, from around biblical, rabbinic, philosophical, modern, and poetic uh, Jewish history and our Jewish literature gives us a chance to reflect together on decisions that we have. What model speaks to us or perhaps different ones in different moments? How do we try it out in the world? Which reading of the story compels us the most? Do we prioritize submission, 
even if it means repressing a sense of indeed an unethical God, but I must submit to that God? Do we countenance in some way a sense that maybe God does ask me to do the unethical, but believe in the slow march of our system towards the ethical, and what's our role in that? Or do we believe that God would never ask the unethical, but then struggle with the questions of how do we interpret Jewish law based on our sense of what's right, without being totally sure of what's being asked of us? And really my wish, my bracha, my blessing for each of us is that we have the courage and the fortitude to return to this text, to return to these questions, to return to the specific battlefields or playgrounds in our own life where these questions play out, and ask them of ourselves and of each other and grow through the process. Thank you. This is a perfect model of a BPM class learning style. Uh, in so many ways, one, because of the depth of exploring all sides of an issue, right? And truly, even the sides we feel so uncomfortable with and we detest, really giving merit to each of the sides that exist in our tradition is what BPM is about. And secondly, I think that we're trying in our learning to strengthen those two voices, the voice of the text, the first voice Abraham hears, and the voice of the angel, the internal angel, the ethical intuition, the spiritual intuition, and to say that our tradition should challenge our own gut, our own conscience, our own sense of right and wrong, and that should challenge the tradition also. We welcome both voices to be um, holy and in conversation with each other. So I'm, deep, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to Rose Stevens for this beautiful sheet where I'm leaving with like 20 questions and yeah. thoughts, <laughs> um, and I hope you'll continue to discuss them together, either with Rose Stevens or with one another. I will, before you go... I